0: It's like nothing you've ever gone after before.
1: Oh, Marcus, what are you trying to do, scare me? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic, a lot of superstitious hocus-pocus.
0: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rowland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 52 this time, and the Joker in this deck is going to pick what she wants to talk about.
0: It's Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Directed by Steven Spielberg, with Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Denham Elliott, Paul Freeman, and John Reese davis We meet Indiana Jones for the first time. He's an archaeologist hired by the U.S. government to find the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis. I'm already tingling with excitement. How about you? don't
1: you take it easy?
0: I've seen this movie a billion times. Never get tired of it. And it starts from the very beginning. We've got the ancient ruins. As
1: opposed to starting from The excitement does. As opposed
0: to kicking in at, you know, hour 20 or something like that.
1: Sure, the excitement. Don't kill anybody.
0: (laughs) We've got Poison Arrows. It's 1936, and we are in the vastness of South America. And it's Indiana. He's on the trail of a very special idol. Now... I saw this when I was about six or seven years old. I was already at a fever pitch several minutes in because we have spiders. We've got a bottomless pit. We've got that super cool golden idol, booby traps, all kinds of cool stuff. It was only missing quicksand.
1: It functions almost like a dark ride, like a fun house, this very opening sequence. It goes hellbent for leather. It's one of the greatest action sequences ever assembled. It really sets the bar high for the rest of the film.
0: And that's before we even get to the boulder, which was the coolest thing I had ever seen at that point. Granted, I was very young, but still. Now, with this whole setup, he's trying to do the calculation of how much sand do I have in my bag so I can transfer the weight so I won't set off this booby trap that has killed my predecessors. How can I get this idol out and back to the US? There's a double cross. There's another archaeologist, Belloc, played by Paul Freeman, who is on his trail as well, and who manages to take the idol from him. Now at this point, I'm so excited. I'm up, I'm down. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. There's even that Tarzan fall. I didn't know, though, speaking of Tarzan, the underpinnings of this film in particular, and films like it. I hadn't yet seen... All of those other adventure films, the serials that really inform this. Do you think it makes a difference?
1: Yes and no. Because, like I said, it is so expertly crafted, this opening sequence especially, that you don't need to know that stuff to have a good time. I think it's later, as you grow older, as you go back and do these reviewings that you've done, when you become aware of those things, that it makes a much bigger difference. And you see it as part of a much longer lineage. This has rightfully taken its place over the years among the pantheon of a hundred plus years of adventure cinema. But it certainly is fun when you know that to be able to go back and see it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that. I really like to play that spot the influence.
0: Is it true that you probably have more experience with those underpinning films, those influences than I do?
1: Probably. And I think it falls weirdly along gender lines now that I think about it because there's a whole tradition of boys' adventure stories that, growing up in the 70s, I was privy to the tail end of its popularity. In addition to that, the five-year age difference, I was 11, where you were six, and I had already seen a ton of Republic serials, Tarzan movies, like you mentioned. I had grown up on a steady diet of that sort of action film, so I was well acquainted with the cliffhanger aspect of the whole thing and was really excited by it, too.
0: You mentioned the Republic serials, and I think it's really interesting that Steven Spielberg said, I made it as a B-movie. I didn't see the film as anything more than a better-made version of the Republic serials.
1: Better made, I'll give him that, because he is a consummate craftsman, and he had decades of study on those films by this point. But better, I don't know, because in those short bursts on Saturday afternoons in the matinee, all you got was the good stuff, and that was it. And they were breathtaking. And it left you clamoring for the next installment every single time.
0: Speaking of the good stuff, the boulder is what made me think about a question one of our super great podcast friends, Jeff Duncanson, had asked. What was the thing that made you a film lover? Now, I wouldn't say that this is the thing that made me Excited to explore more about film, but I can't imagine a more interesting, exciting, exhilarating way to usher in my film-going career than with this amazing boulder coming down and almost crushing him. And since then, as I mentioned, I've watched it many, many times. And at this point, I feel like I pretty much know it by heart. And that's illustrated by something that happened just the other day. At my office, we've got big screens throughout, and people are constantly watching movies and TV, which sounds kind of crazy. It's one of those hit new workplaces. But I happened to just stand up from my desk and look at the screen. I saw a face, and I knew that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It wasn't Harrison Ford's face. It was the face of one of the porters. But it's so ingrained in me, I knew exactly what it was. And it was shocking to me, that people standing around didn't know even when Harrison Ford came on screen. Hmm. To be fair, they were more excited about watching The Mighty Ducks later. <laughs> okay. So if that tells you age a little bit. I mention this for another reason. Because as it is one of those things that we've both seen many times, how can you find anything new in it?
1: Well, this is a question I think about an awful lot. Because when you watch as many movies as we do, and often over and over again... What are you hoping for? I don't watch films for comfort, the way a lot of people do, so I'm not putting on something for it being an old friend there just to spend time with. I am almost always specifically looking to delve into it to get something new out of it, and so does it yield something is the question I'm asking most of the time when I'm rewatching a movie. But I do have a few of these like you where I have a hard time remembering when I didn't know every single detail of this thing backwards and forwards. So are you envious of people that are getting to see this for the first time, like in the environment at your office there? People for whom all of the thrills and excitement are brand new and they don't know what's coming around every corner. Yes and no. Okay.
0: Yes, because I think it's great and I want everybody to see it. And it's astounding to me that some people haven't. And I feel like the second that they do, they're going to walk away with a smile on their face. No, because I couldn't stop what I was doing and go watch it. (laughs) And I felt like it was wasted on those Mighty Ducks.
1: Based on their reaction to it, do you think it makes a difference to them that they don't know all the antecedents to that? Because I'm guessing they're not hip to a lot of Flash Gordon and Buster Crab.
0: Absolutely. And I think in general, I imagine you kind of feel the same way most of the time. Most people are not studiers, lovers, curators of film in the way that we try to be. So they may not even know the lineage of the Mighty Ducks movie. Mm. And it doesn't seem to stop them from enjoying it. So I don't want to be that blowhard that comes in and says, well, if not for blah, blah, blah. So I try to keep that stuff to myself. Now, I'm glad you mentioned that idea of really why rewatch. And that actually leads me into our next scene. After having seen this so many times, I was really surprised that I actually picked up something in this viewing that I never paid any Hmm. attention to before.
1: Okay, what was that?
0: It's this idea that gets introduced in the very next scene, more of a theme, I would say. Okay. A rumination about folklore and its ties to religion, superstition, and God, and how dangerous that can be. I think it gets woven throughout, and I'm going to try. I tried to highlight those instances of it because it's really neat. I never thought about it. So, back at the university, Indy is explaining to Marcus about how he lost the idol. We start first with this lecture that he's giving, where he specifically talks about the danger in archaeology, which we understand as a science, is folklore. Marcus tells him that army intelligence is waiting for them, something very important to talk to him about. We learn that Indy is an expert on archaeology, difficult to find antiquities, but also on the occult, which doesn't mean he is necessarily interested in or a practitioner of just an expert, that science of learning.
1: may have been a lot more interesting to me in retrospect if he had been a practitioner. Yeah,
0: Let's see where that goes. Well, I did say Temple of Doom. No, thank you. Anyway, when we go into this next scene, which is full of exposition, we learn about what the Ark is. Indy's old mentor Ravenwood. The stakes of finding the Ark. The Nazis are involved. How Hitler is also obsessed with the occult. And as Marcus also tells us in a moment, the stakes could not be higher. With the Ark, the Nazis would essentially be invincible. This scene to me is a pretty fascinating one, and I actually studied it in screenwriting class. It's one of those master classes in how to fit in A lot of information in a really artful and interesting way that gets you involved in the story. And I think that Indiana is treating God, essentially, as folklore as well.
1: As I would hope an objective scientific mind would. They're all equal, it would seem. If you are at all familiar with the traditions of antiquity, you realize there have been gods as long as there have been people, thousands of them. Before we get any further, I have to let the air out of two ideas a little bit. Go for it. One, that Indy is an archaeologist. Okay. (laughs) He's a looter. Good point. I think real archaeologists probably bristle at the notion of him being their representative. Two, the Nazi occult thing.
0: The subject of a number of History Channel episodes.
1: (laughs) The Nazis, the Washington generals of the History Channel... (laughs) (laughs) That idea was seized upon in the 40s and then blown all out of proportion. I don't doubt that Hitler might have been interested in these things, but I don't think the way he is portrayed in popular culture, especially the fringe parts of popular culture, as being completely obsessed by it and wholly driven by it, that is so far off the mark as to be laughable, I think, when you go back and actually look at documented sources. And unfortunately, I think this movie may have spread that idea more than any other single piece of popular culture. The people that really believe that and write those books, they're historians the same way Indy is an archaeologist.
0: I want to talk about your looter's point for a second. Okay. It is called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Which I always assumed was the other people. Sure. <laughs> Not Indiana.
1: Well, that's at least reassuring in one way, if nothing else. You don't side with Nazis.
0: True. I'm on the record as not (laughs) siding with Nazis. Now, I was doing uh, a little bit of searching today. something that's very interesting to me. The concept of where do antiquities belong? Mm -hmm. Now, Indiana states repeatedly that really what he does is for the museum. Whatever he gets belongs to the museum. He is paid for it. He is adamant that the Ark belongs in the museum once he is able to hopefully find it. Now, where do you think you fall on this question i'm going to give you two popular options one which is that a piece of art or an antiquity essentially belongs to the world so a museum is a very appropriate place because we all have access to it in theory the second is that the piece of art belongs to the place in which it was created but of course that can get really murky because the Material itself could be from one place, the artist from another. It could have been commissioned by an entirely different place. But those larger questions aside, what do you think about it?
1: That's a tough one. You're asking tough questions as go around. It would be hypocritical of me to say that I don't believe in museums. We frequent them every time we travel.
0: Absolutely.
1: My life has been unimaginably changed by the things I've seen collected in these places
0: things that I never would have had an opportunity to see otherwise.
1: The way culture at large has benefited from being able to study these things. And you're right, it's tricky, especially when it comes to origin. If you leave the items in the care of, even not taking into account the nationality of the artist and all of the things you were mentioning, even if you're just going strictly by where the item was created and discovered, a lot of these places don't have the facilities to preserve study. Do they just stay where they are? Do we leave them in the ground? Ultimately, it would be ideal if every one of these cultures had the institutes of higher learning, had the facilities to house them in a museum, to study them on their home ground. But then we run into things like we're seeing now in the current culture where ISIS is destroying things that are irreplaceable.
0: Absolutely. It doesn't take into account wars that happen now, let alone wars that happened centuries ago.
1: Ultimately, I fall on the side of preserving, restoring, studying. But I think you can do that in an ethical way. And you're certainly not out there doing it with no rules in place and strictly for money.
0: And with a bullwhip. (laughs) Right. Now, Indy is on the trail of the Ark. He's going to look for Ravenwood in Nepal to try to get some idea of where to go next. Now, this is my favorite part of the film. Okay. It's the map. (laughs) All right. I think this makes my heart race. I love it. I cannot fully describe how much I like seeing that red line and then the dots when they get to a specific destination. And it has now become, since that moment that I first saw it, one of those things that I wait for in films.
1: Now, we talked about not having the antecedents for this. Was this the first time you had seen this technique? Because so much of those older films have it in
0: there. This was my first time. Okay. To a lesser extent, but still there. It's the same feeling when that Paramount logo morphs into the mountain at Mm -hmm. the beginning because it's that insider thing that somehow delights my soul, but probably not a ton of other people. And this made me think about something that we had discussed separately a long time ago. I think you have that same feeling in songs.
1: Oh, tons of them. There are moments that I wait and wait and wait for, and it's a lot to do with tension and release, same as this sort of action-adventure thing. For example, there's a particular Slint song, Nosferatu Mand, that I will sit and wait for that 3 minutes and 12 seconds until that single drumstick click after Building and building and building, and it goes dead quiet. And it's nothing but a click, but it is so exciting because it is so unexpected, at least the first time you hear it, and then you want to have that feeling again and again and again.
0: Now we meet another character whom I know and knew you were going to love the most. He gets to Nepal at the bar that Marion, Ravenwood's daughter, whom he had had some kind of an affair, and then A falling out with her father about years ago, she's been running this bar.
1: Marion is the character that you think I would like? Is that what you mean? Her in particular?
0: Because of Karen Allen.
1: I love Karen Allen.
0: I think she's the type that you adore.
1: I think you're right. In fact, when we were talking about my personal ad and the whole notion of getting your hands dirty, (laughs) that's what I was talking about. That kind of girl. Rough and tumble and not so much worried about building raised beds.
0: Well, thanks.
1: <laughs> no slide on you.
0: Uh, th- I think that was exactly you know what. On me.
1: Now that I think about it, I'm so mad at Steven Spielberg because her hair was more red than that, and they covered her freckles. Those sons of bitches!
0: You can really see them on her leg in one scene. Yeah. At the same time, I thought, I bet Cole's loving this.
1: They intentionally covered her freckles, and they made her hair black instead of the reddish color that it was. So pff, that's what I say to that. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I love Karen Allen.
0: She made me think of Ida Lupino, which I will bring up later.
1: That is a great comparison.
0: So wait for a special game we're going to play later on in the episode. Okay,
1: great. I think the other thing about her that I really love and that she was sort of known as, she was always that quote unquote girl with a book in roles prior to this and everything I'd seen her in before this, that's exactly how I thought of her.
0: She's rough and tumble, like you mentioned. And we learn that Abner is dead, and both Indy and the Nazis are looking for this headpiece that they believe that she has, that's the key to finding the location for the Ark. Her bar gets destroyed in this big fight that they have. And so as her world is now gone, she is Indy's partner, and she's going to go with him to try to find the Ark. And now that they're partners, they head to Cairo, and they meet up with Indy's old friend, Sala. And this is the section where we learn a little bit more about where the Nazis are, the scope of their digging operation. Indy gets those crucial pieces of information that let him know exactly where he needs to look in order to find the Ark. And we know that the Nazis are digging in the wrong place. Now, we get an extended sequence in here, in the marketplace, the Nazis are on Indy's trail and they're able to separate Marion from him.
1: Thanks to that damn snitch monkey.
0: Double cross the monkey. He's going to cool. get his. Not cool monkey. Now he thinks that she's been put into this basket and then tossed into this truck. And so he's going after this truck. He manages to shoot the driver, which results in a turnover and explosion. So Marion is dead, which really, if you think about it, it's his fault.
1: It's not the first time we see things not working out the way he intended. He comes across, actually, as a bit of a perennial loser. His finds are often taken from him by competing archaeologists. He's gotten Marion killed, although I don't know that he is that upset about it in the first place. I think he's a bit of a bastard, and he's using Marion. That changes, of course, but I think it establishes early on that his instinct's not always the best. We knew that from the very beginning, from that opening sequence. When he is replacing the idol with the bag of sand, he takes a look, second guesses what he has in the bag, takes a little bit out, and I always think another archaeologist would have left it alone and it would have worked just fine.
0: Every time I watch it, I think, if you had just settled it in and distributed the weight and I'm sitting there trying to do the physics of it, But it never really occurred to me that he wasn't the hero, 100%. Except for that establishment of his fatal flaw, which is that he is scared of snakes. Not that he is a bastard and ruined his girlfriend's previous life and has now killed her.
1: Well, he's very much in that mold of Errol Flynn and the charming rogue. It's total Han Solo. It's Harrison Ford's bread and butter.
0: We've mentioned specifically those competing archaeologists, and we now see Belloc, his main rival, as he is drowning his sorrows, not gigantic sorrows probably, but Belloc talks to him in this really interesting extended scene about how archaeology is their religion. I think it's great framing too, because you can barely see any light in his eyes as he's listening to Belloc talk about this, talk about this as the Ark is the radio for speaking to God. Though in the next scene, it's a little bit more of that mysticism. He's with the old man, reading through the headpiece, and that wind blows through.
1: Before we get out of that, I wanted to address something you said there. The whole thing about shade and shadow, and this exchange they're having, where Belloc tells him, I'm a shadowy reflection of you. We're not that different. Belloc sees that his ethics are questionable. It takes one to know one, basically. And realizing that, when you go back and look at the ways that India is presented in this whole thing, how often he is in shadow. For instance, the very introductory scene. We hear him being spoken about. He's in silhouette. And when the big reveal comes that that's who they're speaking about, he steps forward out of the shadows. When he first shows up at Marion's bar, huge silhouette cast on the wall. When he and Sala are taking the arc, shadows and silhouettes everywhere. So it's not just a great 1936-ish movie device with all of this proto-noir that's happening. It's indicative of his character as well. He is shady.
0: One of the moments that I love as well is when we're focused on his private dig that's happening. And it says the sun is going down and he starts to remove his native garb, puts his hat on, and that's all in silhouette. Love that moment.
1: It's so iconic, that costume and that silhouette that he cuts, that I am amazed that he thought he could get away with starting an alternate dig a few hundred feet away from where the Nazis are, and they wouldn't look up and see on that ridge in the sunset, hey, there's Indiana Jones, TM.
0: (laughs) Well, I wasn't the project manager on that site. (laughs) I can only guess, because we do see the scope of this dig, that they're counting on so many hundreds upon thousands of people spread throughout that he'll just blend in as just another sight. Now, I just jumped ahead a bit with that moment that I really love, but to backtrack for a second. During this digging operation, Indy happens to stumble upon a tent, and there's Marion. She didn't die, she was just kidnapped, and she's been tied up. Now, Indy the Bastard comes into play, because he says, if I take you out now, they're just going to start looking for us. So finding the Ark is more important.
1: I told you. The Ark is priority. I told you.
0: She's in the hands of literal Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he leaves her there, and we have this scene that I find to be really interesting, where we explore the burgeoning relationship of marian and belloc and then also his motives now i haven't touched upon this before but belloc is a frenchman mm-hmm. and as the scene goes on and he brings out a bottle it looks like the label is in hebrew possibly so possibly belloc is a jew and i'm thinking about the point that you made earlier that shadow and his motives And the fact that he is shady and embraces it. So he is essentially for hire. And I also think he has a more complicated relationship with religion. Even though he talks about archaeology as our religion, I think there's a lot more going on. And I think he is personally driven by the search for the Ark in a way that's entirely different than Indy's. Would you agree?
1: I definitely think so.
0: And all through this sequence, when there is a bit of an aborted seduction and Belloc is actually protecting Marion from the Nazis, I find myself really liking him as a character. Maybe it's just because he's French and I'm predisposed.
1: I didn't realize your francophilia extended as far as dirty collaborators.
0: Looters and (laughs) uh, Nazi apologists. Now, the Nazis... Toss Marion into the chamber with Indy. He has gotten the Ark out, and now, again, Belloc has it. (laughs) Yeah, perennial loser. This is the really famous, you know, floor-covered-in-snakes bit. They actually get out of that mess pretty quickly, but they still got a number of obstacles in their path to get to the Ark, which is on its way back to Cairo in a truck. There's a gigantic Nazi... In a plane fight. And then there are a number of smaller Nazis who are very eager to take him on at risk of life and limb.
1: One of whom emits a Wilhelm scream, which I loved.
0: Absolutely. So there's that big extended action sequence with the truck and Indy going through the windshield onto the grill under the truck, drug behind. Very exciting. What do you think about these big action set pieces?
1: They are fantastic. They were state-of-the-art at the time, obviously. And they pretty much all hit somewhere between 85 and 100 for me. Every single one of them. The opening scene and the truck scene in particular, both perfect. To a lesser degree, the bizarre scene.
0: With the baskets. Right.
1: You know what? Actually, the plane fight, also 100. That whole sequence is fantastic. It's like the serial thing that we mentioned at the beginning. Those sections are all good stuff. The truck sequence in particular will always be burned into my mind because it was the very first time I ever recall seeing a featurette about how a particular stunt was achieved. As we've gone on and become collectors and how much we love the Criterion Collection and all these things that give us context and behind the scenes, all that stuff, this was the germ of that, this very sequence. I can't remember now if it was on Entertainment Tonight or where it aired. Real people. (laughs) could be. It wasn't on home video. I know that. It was prior to the release of the movie, so it was a publicity thing. But it's the very first time I remember seeing in such explicit detail, here's how this super cool thing was made.
0: Now, in watching that, did it make you like it even more? Or did it feel like you were looking behind the scenes and it ruined it for you? Oh,
1: it didn't ruin it at all because it's an incredible achievement. It's one of those classic old school jumping off the stagecoach kind of things that all those stuntmen that I love would have done. It's not CGI. It's all practical. It's a very two-fisted Hal Needham kind of stunt.
0: And you do really love that stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I wanted to be a stuntman when I was a little kid based on stuff like this. And Hooper.
0: (laughs) I did once make out with a guy who went to stuntman school. Does that count?
1: I don't know. Did you break his
0: bones?
1: (laughs) Well, only slightly less dangerous than that is this super cool truck bit. Now, we mentioned that serials in their installments are basically all just the good stuff. Cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Raiders of the Lost Ark mostly succeeds for me. I would give it four stars out of five, is how I would rate it. And the reason it's not a full-on five-star thing for me are the bits that don't work. The stuff in between. Like what? Well, there are a number of things that I think are handled clumsily. When Indy and Marion reunite when he comes to their bar, the first half-dozen lines or so of dialogue between them are very stilted and mannered and clumsy.
0: I will say, on paper, they read really well, but I know what you mean about they don't feel right coming out of the mouth.
1: The scene to me plays like they shot it chronologically, and it took them a while to get warmed up. The first minute or two doesn't quite cut it as far as their interaction with each other. The biggest example of all of it for me is probably the bizarre scene. I see elements of Jim Cotta in it. (laughs)
0: I think you got your chronology off.
1: And specifically, the thing I don't like is when the kids come to his rescue. When he is having that confrontation with Belloc and the kids save him. It's awkward and it feels like every once in a while the movie dips from Raiders of the Lost Ark level down to Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold level.
0: Which I also saw in the theater.
1: And the third one that really doesn't work for me is the snake on the plane bit. That feels like an unnecessary setup. For a punchline that would have been just fine by itself.
0: But the snake's name is Reggie.
1: (laughs) He is personality plus. But I don't know who the snake was dating to get the cameo. What producer they were going out with. Totally superfluous. Okay. And as it turns out, I think I know why those sections feel like that to me. I discovered in doing research this time around for this, this was the first time Spielberg used second unit. This was the first time he didn't shoot everything himself and assemble all of it on his own.
0: Wow, okay.
1: And he's so meticulous and very specific in his aesthetic that I think those sections that are jarring and not quite up to par have to be the work of someone else because he would not have done it quite that way. Now, I haven't gone back to see if there's a specific record of which of those scenes were shot by the second unit, so I could be way off in my estimation of who did what. I'm going to go with the fact that that's what it is that made those scenes not work for me.
0: Well, that leads me to the scene that doesn't work for me. and never has, but it's for kind of a silly reason. At this point, Marion and Indy have made it out of the desert, and they are limping towards a ship and hopefully safety. The Ark is on board with them. And we have the sex scene, for lack of a better term. The thing that has always bothered me is when she tilts the mirror around and hits him really hard. And it is impossible for me to believe that she couldn't hear him screaming, so when she says what, Uh, it makes me angry at this point.
1: She's just not being passive-aggressive,
0: do you think? No, she really seems to have not heard him, and (laughs) it bothers me.
1: I have one of those too, actually, now that you mention it. Okay. When the Nazis are carrying the Ark through the desert, there's a sequence where that liver lip Nazi... Tote takes his hat off, and he is supposed to have what is a bald spot, but it is clearly shaven to approximate that effect. And every time it takes me right out of the movie for a split second, it sticks out like a sore thumb.
0: I dumbly assumed they were telling us that it got burnt off during the bar fire back in Nepal, but I I, I think I just interpolated that incorrectly.
1: I can see that being their excuse for not paying attention to continuity or (laughs) this shaving not looking on film like it might have looked in person. But was there any part of the bar fight that included his hat catching on
0: fire? Probably not. It was just his hand, hand. I think. That's what I would say. If you came back to work on Monday and said, uh, what is the problem here? I would say, uh, don't you remember in the bar scene? (laughs) His hair is on fire.
1: Well, that one... Yeah, my disbelief is unsuspended for a second when that
0: happens. (laughs) But that's the only one that doesn't work for me in the whole movie.
1: Now that you bring it up, there's one interesting element of that romantic scene that I think applies to that thing I was saying about boys' adventure stories earlier. In the world of the Saturday matinee, in the world of the H. Ryder Haggard paperback shoved into your back pocket along with your slingshot, what you don't want Is a bunch of yucky girls messing up the thing. (laughs) So, this scene is safe for kids that age, it feels like, to not be put off by, ooh, mushy stuff. Because he does that, it hurts here. It hurts here. And young kids that don't necessarily know what the subtext of this is, that could play strictly as maternal instead of a romantic thing. So it's a way to get that in for the adults and still not raise the hackles of the, say, what, you were six, I guess. The six to ten-year-old little boys who are so thrilled at adventure and treasure and swinging on vines that then don't have to throw a fit at, ooh, yucky girls in my movie. A sentiment that is probably not unfamiliar to a lot of them if we just look at the Wonder Woman debacle from the last few weeks. (laughs)
0: Well, romance can wait because the Nazis have caught up with the ship. They take Marion and the Ark off while Indy manages to hide and escape, at least for the moment. They head towards the closest island, and it's Belloc's intention to open the Ark in a full-on ritual.
1: What I want to know is, where did they get that nifty Ark-shaped slipcover? Did it come with that? Do you have to (laughs) custom make that? An Ark Cozy? I
0: guess that's what it is. They picked it up in Cairo, probably. You can get a lot of stuff there. Etsy. And one of the Nazis specifically talks about being uncomfortable with the thought of this Jewish ritual. Which, at this point, is really our only discussion of Jews, essentially, in the movie itself.
1: They keep that stuff pretty clean. Yeah. Although the thing you mentioned about that possibly being Belloc's origin is interesting, especially in this scene at the end where he is wearing ceremonial dress.
0: Yes. Now, before that, Indy threatens to blow up the Ark. He says, for once, all I want is the girl. Now, Belloc immediately causes a bluff on it and says, yeah, blow it back to God. Well, he decides not to do that and allows himself to be taken prisoner with them. This is the ceremony. Belloc is in full robes. He's conducting the ceremony in Hebrew. And now shit's going to go down.
1: The Ark of the Covenant, live at Red Rocks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Definitely. All those arc lights and everything. And it's being filmed.
1: I did really like that detail. You see very specifically pointed out one Nazi film camera... But the presence of that camera and specifically pointing it out to the audience conjures up all of that Nazi documentation that was taking place, Lenny Riefenstahl, all of those things that, as a cinema goer, if you know your history, it's a nice little detail to think about.
0: They open the Ark, and it's only sand. But this is when the wrath of God begins to come out. And it's also the section that I always have to cover my eyes
1: don't look, Erica. Whatever you do.
0: Not just because of that, but because it is gross. <laughs> because faces get melted off.
1: You do the same in Poltergeist, right? When the guys at the you, sink. Oh,
0: God. I wish you hadn't even said that. Oh. Because <laughs> I had a dream last night about... That you left all of this <laughs> rotting stuff and meat juice in the trash can for some reason. So I've forgotten about it until you just said that.
1: So seals one through seven have been opened.
0: Definitely. Faces burning off, holes of lightning going through bellies. Basically, everyone is returned to the sand. The fire scorches down. Marion and Indy are saved because they didn't look at it. Though I'm not entirely sure why is it you're not allowed to look into the face of God.
1: Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I
0: guess. I didn't know if you had a strong opinion about that.
1: Obviously not.
0: (laughs) So pretty much the end. They're back in D.C. No one will tell Indy where the Ark is and he's been paid off. And we have that moment of watching the little Ark maintenance worker settle it into the Ark uh, maintenance storage unit A.
1: And then another nod to classic cinema history, super Citizen Kane reference right there to close the whole thing out.
0: So it turns out Hitler was right to look for it, because it did have the power of God in it.
1: Even in broken clocks, right? Twice a day. (laughs) Even if it's a Nazi clock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So is the film telling us that really, because of Indy, America won and Hitler lost, which is why he then lost the war?
1: I don't think so exactly, because Indy didn't do anything. He was a bystander. He did not make the Ark do that. He just happened to keep his eyes shut and then retrieve it later. If the people who had captured it for the Nazis had understood what it was and what it would do, they would have kept it. He had nothing to do with how that turned
0: out. So he's not our savior.
1: No, He's not
0: representative not. of all of our best historical impulses in rewriting history.
1: Oh, definitely not. Okay. It's clear to me in the title. Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's everyone involved in this search. No one on this list is a defender or protector from or of the Lost Ark. Everyone involved in this chase is a raider at some level or another. And that thing you mentioned about him not being the savior makes me wonder. Is he only a good guy by virtue of being contrasted with Nazis? Because he's extremely unethical. He's a bastard to Marion. Is he only a hero, or an anti-hero, I guess, in this case, because he is literally up against the worst villains of the 20th century?
0: And also, none of them are left to tell the tale.
1: So I turn your question back at you.
0: Yes. By virtue of being the last man standing, and the best looking, and having the best hat, <laughs> okay. and the bullwhip, he is the hero. USA. <laughs> Great. Great.
1: So, while you're caught up in your jingoist fervor here, is that why you
0: chose it? No. Well, at least in part. Okay. I mentioned that question earlier from our friend Jeff about what makes you a film lover, and that occurred to me, and then that coincidence at work. But I was having this feeling of keeping that summer movie theme going, and this seemed like a perfect fit.
1: Well, it certainly is that. It has all of the basic building blocks of the summer blockbuster. It has your outsized hero versus outsized villains. Everything is exaggerated, a little cartoonish. The adventure is over the top. You've got your colorful supporting cast that you always need for that kind of adventure. You have exotic locales because I think people underestimate these days when they're making the summer blockbuster how vital a component that was when people were building the template for this. All the way back to Jaws, all the way back to the first big one. You have a primordial, unstoppable force in that villain. You have beach, so you have summertime, you have vacation. People, if they aren't somewhere on vacation in the summer, they want these exotic places. They want Nepal, Tunisia, Morocco. If you're going to be sitting in a movie theater, in my case, in Lawton, Oklahoma in 1981, if you can't be at the beach or somewhere exotic, you want to see that line moving on the map, and it's exciting, just like you mentioned.
0: And if you were like me in Roanoke, Virginia, and you had just stood in line for maybe two hours, wrapped around the movie theater because it was a monoplex, (laughs) in order to get into it, which I have to say, even though it is a cherished memory... Those standing in line memories, it was a pain in the ass.
1: The longest line I ever remember was when we went to see the original Pete's Dragon at the video triple. It was a triplex. And we had to go up the side of the building and all the way up a sloping parking lot to the highway, essentially, (laughs) and stand there, again, like you said, for hours until we got into what was probably the third pass of the day, For Pete's Dragon.
0: And if you were just behind those people who decided even though there are two of them, they're going to buy six tickets, and they got (laughs) the last ones, and you got to wait for the next one.
1: Pivotal summer experience, that Pete's Dragon line.
0: Another reason, I'm going to go back to something we mentioned earlier, likening Karen Allen's performance to Ida Lupino, and talking about the underpinnings of this. It's in that grand tradition of things that I now know, and love. And it makes me think about a little game that I want to play with you, which is, what is your dream cast of this film if it were made in 1936?
1: Well, one of the most interesting things about it to me is that it could have been made, and it was shot to look like a lot of those things. I feel like you could pick this up and drop it down in 1936, minus some of the gore, And it would play exactly as well as it plays right now. When you mentioned to me that you were thinking about this, I started making my mental list, and I went at it more like a studio head, I think, rather than what I personally, Cole, would want to see. Because it is an A picture.
0: Uh, I am Louis B. Mayer in this scenario, too, (laughs) so you just wait till you hear mine.
1: So mine might seem a little obvious, but it would have been the biggest movie of 1936.
0: Okay, who do we have?
1: Cary Grant is Indiana Jones.
0: Incorrect, but go on.
1: Who do you have?
0: Uh, No, I'll tell you after we get through yours. Okay,
1: I choose him because you have to have someone that has that roguish charm, but you also have to have the person that can pull off the physicality and be a professor.
0: I am 100% with you. I already looked at Carrie's headshot and discarded <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Keep going.
1: Okay. This is probably the choice of mine that you will like the least. For Marion, Carol Lombard.
0: I'm with you. Fantastic. Okay. Mine's better, but we'll get there. (laughs)
1: Okay. I'm guessing you're going Ida Lupino, since you've brought her name up multiple times.
0: I'm going to cheat like crazy when we get to Um, mine, so just wait.
1: I went with Carol Lombard because Marion is equally as tough as Indy. Every bit. And, from the beginning, can drink all these Nepalese under the table, and I think that's definitely Carol Lombard. I'm going to fall back on the tried and true. If it makes money, we're going to keep going to that well. And for Belloc, Paul Henreid.
0: Okay. Good.
1: You push him over to the dark side a little bit. He's just complex enough to play all the things you were talking about. And for Sala, and especially for Tote, you keep the team together and you get Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie.
0: Ah, okay. Pretty good.
1: So you've got them from The Three Strangers, you've got them from Casablanca, and now you have them in this as well.
0: Okay. Are you ready for mine?
1: Blow my mind.
0: Okay. Starting at the top with Indy, I went through that same thought process. Why I decided not to go with Cary Grant? Because he is so beautiful. I cannot imagine him losing anything ever. So I went with someone who I think could portray that a little bit more, who had the natural athleticism, the intelligence, the charm, the looks, all of that. I was going to go with your favorite actor of all time, Joel McRae.
1: (laughs) This guy sounds like a hunk.
0: I decided instead to go with Frederick March. Hmm. I think he is interesting and complex. I was also debating possibly Spencer Tracy.
1: I have to work to see it because most of his stuff, I think of him as being a little effete. But then I think... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's
0: what pushed it over for me. That's a
1: super physical and intense performance with a lot of darkness so I can see it working.
0: Now, I'm I'm building here. Okay. So just bear with me. Keep going. Okay. For Marion, I decided Ida Lupino was not available during young. the shooting. Yeah. Right. Probably a little bit too young. So, Paulette Goddard. Oh. Done.
1: Bingo. Wonderful. Okay. You got me. I'll yeah. give you that
0: one. Yeah. I, I was feeling really proud of myself when I came upon her.
1: Not to mention that she moves me in similar ways exactly. that Karen Allen does. Exactly. So.
0: Yeah. She's a pip. Yeah. Now, this next actor. <laughs> okay. I had to get him in the film some way. So I was really trying to decide, Belloc or Sala? And I decided Sala. And it is Jean Gabin. Oh. The charisma, except in my film... Marion ends up with Sala. I okay. mean, come on.
1: Sure, of course.
0: You can understand why he has 12 children. I want to give him an entire section where he sings as well.
1: Okay. He does. He sings he that does. song when they part for the last time.
0: Yes. So I think Jean Gabin would be great in it. Okay. You you want to have a whole movie with him. Certainly. Into our bad guys. For Belloc, I decided on Claude Rains. Okay. I think he is still very charming, but has that shifty shadiness about him that I think really plays.
1: I think I got you on this one. I think Paul Henry kind of edges.
0: That was a good one. I think Claude Rains is more fun, though. Yeah? I'm throwing Paul Lucas in there for Mm. any other available part. I'm going to make a special part for him. Okay, sure. Just to have him in there. So I think I nailed this one.
1: Here's what I'll say. Your movie will be the better movie. My movie will make more money.
0: Okay. All right. Good point.
1: My movie, truth be told, wouldn't be nineteen thirty six, it would be nineteen seventy-six. And Werner Herzog would make it, and Klaus Kinski <laughs> would play every role. It would be a tour de force.
0: I can't I can't wait.
1: He even has experience with monkeys. So <laughs> jackpot.
0: Oh my goodness. Now after our dream films, our reimaginings of Raiders. How about a recommendation?
1: I am going back to the blueprint for the original Charming Rogue, and I am doing Robin Hood. Initially, I thought I'll do the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, but then I remembered, you know what? The Disney Robin Hood from 1973 actually is just that good and has kick-ass Roger Miller tunes in it. So I am going with the Disney version from 1973.
0: I thought you were going to say the Kevin Costner version.
1: (laughs) I would not say that. This was directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, and this was voiced by, among others, Peter Ustinov, Terry Thomas, Brian Bedford, Monica Evans, Bill Harris, Andy Devine, and Pat Buttram. You haven't seen this, right?
0: Right. So, Pat Buttram must do a farm animal, right? Voice? (laughs) No?
1: Pat Buttram plays the sheriff of Nottingham, but he's every bit the wheeler dealer and weasel that Mr. Haney is. Gotcha. So... It is a character that you know and love. Like I mentioned, the Roger Miller narration and tunes put this over the top for me. It's such a fun version of the story, and it's been told time and time and time again, and the Errol Flynn version is also a huge favorite, but I chose this one because it has ties to other things that we talked about in the show, specifically that featurette about the stunt. Now, when I was little, I had a Fisher-Price movie viewer. And I don't know if you've seen those before, but what that is, is it looks like a little camera and you insert pre-VHS era cartridges into it, point it at a light, and you crank it and you watch the movie unfold. It was a super fancy ViewMaster, basically, that you could watch motion pictures. And I had one that had a few cartridges with it, but my favorite cartridge was Robin Hood. Because I could slowly crank through the scene where he splits the arrow makes his daring escape. All of these great things happen. And then you could run it backwards. It was the coolest thing. But I remember now in retrospect, that was the very first time I was aware of still frames adding up to a motion picture. So it taught me about the very roots of what it takes to bring pictures to life. And I will never, ever forget that toy or that film. What
0: about you? I was thinking more of that Saturday afternoon adventure. Now, this has adventure, as I mentioned, history, Germans, some romance, and an exotic locale. And I picked The African Queen oh, okay. from 1951, directed by John Huston with Humphrey Bogart and Katherine Hepburn.
1: I mulled over Catherine Hepburn for just a split second when we were doing our Dreamcast of 1936, but then I thought, eh, too obvious. Did you think Did I, you think about her too? I
0: actually didn't because, to me, she could be Indiana Jones.
1: I think I thought of her strictly because of the pants thing.
0: Ah, okay. Good point.
1: Anyway, sorry. That's okay.
0: <laughs> I love them both in this. Now, instead of World War II, we've got World War I, and Catherine Hepburn is a straight-laced missionary, and she convinces Humphrey Bogart, who is an alcohol-loving libertine, to attack the Germans and get her to safety. I remember watching it on one of those Saturday afternoons and loving the scene when they're in the boat and you think it's going to fall apart and they're going down the rapids and I thought it was so much fun and then they obviously are really enjoying each other. Great fun to me. So that's two great recommendations as usual. Robin Hood and the African Queen.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 52.
0: And we've got some really big news this week. We launched our Patreon. This is your opportunity to support the show. And we've got all sorts of levels that can make that support possible at whatever works for you.
1: For contributing at the $1 a month level, you will get our eternal gratitude and shout-outs across all of our social media platforms. If you contribute at the $5 level, you will then gain access to two bonus mini episodes every month. Basically, if you don't like waiting in between regular episodes, there will now be something on those alternate Mondays to fill in the gap a little bit for you. The first one's already up. We talked about our movie club that we host, the Hardy Hand Clasp Society, and we just recorded the most recent one about the Michael Caine film, Harry Brown. At the $10 level, you will get one of our super cool enamel pins of our logo with the -the glow-in-the-dark beam, in addition to everything that comes before. All of these levels also include the perks from all previous levels. At the $20 a month level, we will generate a commentary for a film of your choice, and you will receive a track that no one else receives that is unique to you. And at the $50 level, you will actually get to program an episode of the podcast. We'll discuss a movie that you select for us, and we will include your recommendation for further viewing along with our own.
0: Since we launched it, we've already surpassed our first goal. And I know you feel the same. I feel so grateful and humble and so pleased that we've got folks who want to support us.
1: I can't say enough nice things about the people who support the show and our friends that go out of their way to let us know that they care about what we're doing. So if you also feel the same and would like to kick in a little to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to patreon.com slash lantern. And check out all the details there. And we want to give special acknowledgement right off the bat before we do anything else to those people who kicked off the Patreon for us in such grand fashion. Sarah Below, Ryan Jewell, Aaron West, Matteo Boscarol, Ross McLeod, Adam Dotter, and Mike Scharf. With the help of just a handful of people, we already eclipsed that first modest goal that we set, and we're well on our way to meeting our next one. Thank you guys very much. I wanted to take a second right here and mention our friend Tyler Allen, who does a great true crime podcast that I've mentioned before, The Minds of Madness. If you've heard the show by now, you are well aware of what a true crime fan I am, and this show is a really interesting show covering a lot of cases that you don't see profiled on other shows. We'll let him tell you about it. What could an American dad, a university professor, and a passenger on a bus possibly have in common? You can find out by listening to the Minds of Madness podcast, where we uncover the series of events and state of mind, leading ordinary people to do unthinkable things. The Minds of Madness is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. So check out Tyler's show if true crime is your thing. I think you'll enjoy it. If you would like to simply get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in those venues. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I wanted to take a second and thank people who either shared the show or have given us feedback since the last episode. Tim and Leon at the Yagaday podcast. Ali Shantz. Travis Trudell, Grindhouse Dave, the fine gentleman at FUDs on Film, Jeff Duncanson, Andy Wolverton, Tim Lego, Brian Sauer, RJ Tugas, and Claire Kempa. By the way, please make sure and tag us if you share the show so that we can thank you properly. If you're telling people about it, we would like to at least be able to say thank you to you. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any other podcatcher you use. If you would like to leave us a rating or review at any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.